Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. So they're moving ahead with a plan, y'all, but we seem to be in some kind of virtual loop here. And we got to get ourselves out of it. And we got to get out out quick. Ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. America's chickens! Coming home! Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. We strike law and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Well, good evening, and thank you for being here at Our Common Ground. It is so nice to be back. Oh, it's been a long time, and uh, this has been a long time coming. Um, I am so pleased uh, to be able to join you in the sanctuary once again. For those of you who are new to us, welcome. And for those of you who have been with us for almost 20 years, thank you for, for joining us tonight. Uh, to bring you up to speed, I am now no longer <laughs> in federal service. I am a civilian citizen with all due rights and responsibilities. Thank you very much. And for those who uh, know, our broadcast studios uh, were always in Boston, Massachusetts, but we are now retired, and our studios are located in Palm Beach County, Florida. Yeah, I came home. 
So we're going to get started tonight, and uh, I'm just really so pleased to um, uh, to be back. It's been a long time, and to explain to all the people who have been supporters for so many, many years, um, there is going to be an explanation, but there won't be an explanation tonight. Only to say is that they actually gave me a federal retirement. How about that? I miss my friends in Boston, and for those of you who are joining me from New England, uh, especially the people who were my colleagues, people who I worked with in many nonprofits throughout my career, all my classmates from the Sloan School, you know you've been peeking in here. Thank you for uh, expressing uh, your support and all the emails that I have gotten uh, from many, many friends and former colleagues. Tonight at our Common Ground, we want to express to all of you um, that we recognize, we acknowledge the overwhelming, the astoundingly overwhelming crisis that we have all been in and um, are experiencing. And my hope is that you will all stay, stay safe and that uh, for those of you who have, uh, of my uh, listeners and friends who have been personally involved in this uh, effort to contain, to treat patients, and to help families in this pandemic, we honor you and the work and sacrifice that you make. We hope that all of you will remain safe, will find love and comfort with family and friends to remain secure, um, that if you have been uh, struck personally in your family or your neighborhood or your community know that you are not alone nor are you forgotten. This crisis that we face, that we experience, I personally have been in quarantine for six and a half weeks now. Um, I have found those things which I enjoy of places of comfort um, and and a bit of security, but we worry. This crisis is an unspeakable magnitude. So tonight we have decided to come back on the air in this new era of our common ground, in the tradition that we have always maintained, and that is to bring you information which is insightful, helpful, and, and in assistance to your well-being and your personal empowerment. Tonight, in the first page, we're going to be talking in this survival mode with Dr. Kamara Jones. She's a senior fellow at the... Um, uh, Radcliffe Fellow at the 
Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. She is a family physician and the past president of the American Public Health Association, a senior fellow at the Satcher Health Leadership Institute and the Cardiovascular Research Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Jones is a public health leader valued for her creativity and intellectual agility. As a methodologist, she has developed new methods for comparing full distributions of data rather than simply comparing means or proportions. As a social epidemiologist, her work on race-associated differences in health outcomes goes way beyond simply documenting those differences to investigating the structural causes of the differences. I've chosen Dr. Jones as our guest tonight to help us explore, to get an explanation for what we understand. As we come on air tonight, the nation is finally acknowledging that there are health disparities in the black community, existing in the black community, that pose severe risk for us. These are not new health disparities. We've talked about those many times here at Our Common Ground. But what we want to do is ask Dr. Jones to join us as a teacher uh, to help us examine allegories on race and racism to illuminate our understanding of this pandemic. And it is really my pleasure to have her with us in discussion. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for joining us on Our Common Ground. Thank you very much, Janice, for for having me. Um, I, am, I am so impressed. Um, that in the service as a as a physician, as an epidemiologist, that your career illuminates your service to our community, and and we thank you for your service because without people, professionals like you, who are willing to lean in to us as a people, well, we wouldn't know very much. <laughs> we wouldn't understand <laughs> any of this. Now, we talked about health disparities. Help us to understand how health disparities in in the black community are lending itself specifically to exposure and to the medical um, impact of in this uh, in this pandemic. Why are we so highly at risk, and how are we so highly at risk? So that's a very important question, but even before that question is, isn't it great that we know that we're more highly at risk? Because for a long time, those statistics weren't even being shared. So um, it's important for us to know this because we can't, we're not just going to 
look at these statistics and throw up our hands. We have to take action. So the reason that black folks are dying at such high numbers, first, we're getting infected more because we're more exposed and we're less protected because we're just now being recognized as being part of the essential workforce in our frontline jobs in terms of post office or sanitation workers, custodians in the hospitals cleaning the rooms and and all of that. So we're more likely to get infected with this virus, not because we're more susceptible, because every single human being on this earth in December 2019 was equally susceptible to this virus. There was no human on the earth that was immune to this virus. And the first thing that we heard about the virus in general was that um, we were all in this together, right? And it is true that this virus doesn't know uh, if you're black, white, red, brown, yellow, otherwise. It doesn't know where you live. And if opportunity across the world or even in this country were evenly distributed, and if risks were evenly distributed, there would be no way that we could slice and dice this population and find any kind of differences, no matter how you looked at it. So the fact that this virus has been like a heat-seeking missile straight to our communities shows in, in stark detail how opportunity and risk are not evenly distributed in this society. And in fact, there's a name for the system that differentially structures opportunity and assigns value by race in this country, and that system is racism. So when people ask me, how are you understanding what's going on, these excess black deaths, it is because of racism, um, which is a root cause not just of the COVID-19 excess deaths. It's a root cause of the excess numbers of our babies who are dying before their first birthday compared with other babies in this country, the excess numbers of our mothers who are dying in pregnancy-related deaths, the maternal mortality rate, the excess numbers of us who are dying from heart disease and diabetes and kidney disease and all of these things all have that same root cause of racism, but the nation is all of a sudden startled to maybe recognize that a little bit, maybe recognize going on here because our black bodies are piling up so fast with this COVID-19 pandemic that these excess deaths cannot be ignored or normalized. And what I need to say before I hush for a minute and let you, and let you dig deep into part of what I've said, because I haven't even really gone into the mechanisms of how racism is doing this. But what I need to say is that, um, once we identify racism as a root cause, that doesn't mean that people have to throw up their hands and say, oh, well, if it's racism, we can't do anything about it. What it means, because racism and structural racism in particular often manifests itself. It often shows up as lack of action, inaction, in the face of need. And so if we were to see these statistics and then do nothing, then we would be just continuing the racist story of this nation. Well, it's certainly no um, surprise to any of us that Mississippi now, the state of Mississippi is seeing the highest numbers in hospitalizations 
And one of the things I wanted to explore with you is, I mean, if we go back into history, if we go back 25, 30 years ago when black activists were demanding, challenging the CDC, the NIH, and various large uh, medical centers about maintaining records and doing research uh, on the impact of environment in in, yes. in black communities. If we yes. go back to that, I mean, we can go back to that, but one of the things I, I, I do want to explore with you is in that history, we determined and we were reading that the, that there were disparate levels of high blood pressure, cardiac, um, um, respiratory disease. Um, all of it. And it had to do, <laughs> all, all of it, yes. yes. All of it, and all of it. And there was... There was really no effective response in the. I, I can't. I can't say none, but the the response that we got did not come from the government. Where it came from are large urban medical centers. Uh, I know that you're in Cambridge, and for those of you who. Mm-hmm. No, Cambridge is really Boston, but we won't even talk about that. <laughs> but um, it, in some, and I, I know that at the Brigham and Women's in Boston, there's a huge center uh, doing work on respiratory disease in children and black people. I know that that is mm-hmm. happening. But we see these numbers in places under this um, umbrella of the pandemic across the country. We, we, we see the absence of a response uh, historically and why we are seeing so let me, the number. So let me, yeah, so let me, Go let ahead. me try to, to get into that a little bit. So the reason that we in this country have not responded to to how our lives have been so differently structured, how we're living in different realities in this country, right? Because of racial residential segregation, which then, you know, the environmental racism that you're talking about, the fact that there's even a term called sacrifice zones. I didn't realize this until about a year ago. There are communities that are labeled sacrifice zones because these communities are right around known polluters. But instead of taking the pollution out or instead of moving the people to better situations, they are just living in what, what the EPA and others call sacrifice zones. So, so what I want to say is with, with all of these things, there's two things. I want to say how, co- how racism turns into COVID-19, and then I want to say why this country has to keep being uh, reminded that these differences that we're seeing by race and all of these diseases are not genetic because there's no difference in the genes. There's no basis in the human genome, which we have mapped from beginning to end. There's no basis for different species, genetic speciation by race in this country, in the world. 
humans are humans are humans. So, but people tend to jump to genetics, then they jump to individual behavior. And well, if those people just exercised more or ate better food or whatever, right? And then, and all of that is because in this country, we are so narrowly focused on the individual that it makes systems and structures either invisible or irrelevant. Furthermore, even if white people living in very different situations that many black people and many brown people are living in, even if they were to say, okay, I understand that systems and structures exist and they have impact, very rarely do people break out of their bubbles town or on the other side of tracks and see really how different the living situation is and to recognize that there are people just across town who are just as kind, funny, generous, hardworking, smart as they are, who are living in very different circumstances. So we have a blindness to the fact that systems matter in general in this country. Everybody's about, it's about individual effort and, you know, individual, even when we think about how we're doing research in medicine now, we're trying to go all inside the person and get inside the genes, as opposed to recognizing that housing matters, that air pollution matters, that, you know, school matters, that green space matters, and all of those things, that the bigger structural things matter. But so that's part of why people have to keep being awakened um, like with Hurricane Katrina and like, why are all the black people the ones on the roofs? Or with the poisoning of the Flint water supply? Or with the Charleston massacre? Or, you know, all, every now and then the country wakes up and says, oh, racism might exist. And that's what they're doing again now. They can hear me. It's amazing. I, my work, yes, I'm a family physician. Yes, I'm an epidemiologist. But my work for decades has been on naming, measuring, and addressing the impacts of racism on the health and well-being of the nation. And then all of a sudden, a week and a half ago, everybody wanted to talk to me on the news. It's interesting that you said that because that last week I was talking to my TV, and I, I must have said that 20 times. Because everybody wants right. to talk about black health disparities. And my right. question was, time. where y'all been? Right, right. I, as so, a matter of fact, I sent messages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Break it down. I just want to say for COVID-19, well, so for COVID-19, you have two things happening. You have black folks getting more infections. And once we're infected, we are dying more. So we have to explain both of those things. So why are we getting more infections? We're getting more infections because we're more exposed and less protected. We're more exposed because we are on those frontline jobs, um, you know, not able, you know, many fewer black folks are able to work from home than white folks mm-hmm. and, and other folks. You know, so, we're, mm-hmm. so the kinds of jobs that we're in, and why are we in those jobs? Because often we have not had the full, excellent public education of all of our kids. So we are undereducated, skewed into those kinds of jobs. The jobs, you know, those may be the only jobs that are open to us. It may not be jobs even right in our 
communities. And if, you know, if you're trying to get to a job, you might not even have transportation to a job. So the racial residential segregation, which not only segregates housing, it segregates educational opportunities, employment opportunities, grocery stores, and fresh fruits and vegetables, and safe places to play, and green space to enjoy, and clean air, and clean water, all of that is segregated because of these very, the United States is one of the most segregated countries in the world. And so this stuff, this racial segregation, which was put in place by the federal government in many different ways, but especially after World War II, um, the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein goes into some of that detail. It's a very important mm-hmm. thing for us to know. So, so this puts us in the kinds of jobs where we don't have even the, the wealth, certainly we don't have the accumulated wealth. Our wealth is like negative, you know, compared to, compared to, to white folks. I don't have the numbers, so I'm not going to say the numbers. But we know our incomes, our average incomes are different. But beyond that is the wealth, that, that wealth that is transmitted from generation to generation in terms of homes and that kind of thing. We, we've been, for centuries, we, our unpaid labor was exploited to build this country, and we had no wealth to pass on to anybody else. It was passed on to the white families, right? But anyway, mm-hmm. so we are, mm-hmm. we're, we're in these kinds of jobs. We're also overrepresented in, among people who are incarcerated, so that puts us, you know, more at risk, more exposed. Or unhoused people, we are more exposed in that. So we're more exposed, and then... In these places where we're more exposed, we're less protected. Even the bus drivers like Jason Hargrove in Detroit, who had Detroit. a he put a, a right he put a video up talking about somebody coughing in his bus. Two weeks later, he was dead. You know, he didn't have the protective uh, personal protective equipment. Nor do the people working in factories, working in these mm-hmm. meat processing plants. All of this. So we're more exposed, less protected. So that makes we're more infected now. Once we get more infected, because of the conditions of our lives, we have more of these chronic diseases like diabetes, like heart disease, hypertension, kidney disease, asthma, immune deficiency for, from HIV and other things, that once the virus is in us, we get the most severe forms of the disease. So we are, because of the chronic conditions, which they're calling pre-existing conditions, then once we get the virus, we're getting it worse. Then, because of the neighborhoods that many of us are lived in and, and in fact, trapped in, often those neighborhoods do not have, if the hospital is still open at all, you know, maybe doesn't have all the ventilators and all the staffing it needs. So we have that. This is the first time I'm talking about health care. Many people have gotten on the TV and say, well, this is about health care. Well, health care has something to do with it in the end. But all that other stuff I was talking about, how we're more exposed, less protected, and have these chronic pre-existing conditions has nothing to do with health care. It has to do with the conditions of our lives, with our opportunities, our exposures, our resources, and this. Now you come to the health care part. And um, then my biggest fear the, is once we're sick. The big A word. The big A word, access. Access, access. And then once we get into the thing, then you have the differences in care, which if we are going to be facing rationing of ventilators, and now they're talking about having to ration dialysis, emergency dialysis, because many people who are getting 
the COVID-19 in, our, in the intensive care units, their kidneys are being affected too. If we get in this situation of having to ration, we have to be very careful that people do not use the existence of diabetes, heart disease and all as a way to disqualify us from that ventilator or at least make us less, lower on the priority yeah. scale because uh-huh. that would be the double whammy. Yeah, yeah, and people and people are already making that decision. That's what we have to understand. That's they right. They are making the decision, uh, and 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 we cannot dismiss the idea of how unconsciously racist people are in mm-hmm. every place that we go. They make decisions based upon what they see, how they feel, and what their experiences and what they've been taught. And it's very, so you very, know, Dr. Uh, it's very frightening. So what can we do in the short term? We need to make it more feasible for people to shelter in place for black folks. That means we have to decarcerate. We need to provide housing for unhoused people, maybe in the dormitories that have been vacated because the students aren't there anymore or in hotels. We need to provide personal protective equipment to the people who are on the front lines, delivering our mail, delivering our food, you know, picking up the trash and all, give them the protective equipment that they need and hazard pay. That's going to affect the infection part. And then we have to make sure that we put strong healthcare resources in the communities that we can already predict are going to have more uh, infection and more severe forms of the disease. And we have to use some system, if it comes to rationing, which it shouldn't, because in this country right now, there are enough ventilators and all. Thank God we're not having the same level of pandemic all across this country. So, so in some places that aren't seeing it right now, they could move their ventilators and their medical staff to New York. California did that. They sent ventilators to New York and to New Jersey. We could be doing that because we need to not accept a scarcity framework. We should not accept that there's, going to, that there's going to have to be rationing. But if there is rationing, a local scarcity, we have to insist that um, the, the, the things that crisis, they're calling it crisis standards of care. What they mean by crisis standards of care is the usual patient-physician interaction is out the window. You don't ask the family if you're going to take somebody off a ventilator. You don't, you know, it's like in a war zone. And they're trying to be very careful not to say, they're trying to say, we're not going to use race, we're not going to use language, zip code, incarceration status, immigration status, none of that. They're trying to say that. But what they say instead is, but we will use our judgment of who will survive uh, past the ventilator or who will survive, for, you know, who has the most life years yes. left after 12 months. And those things are tied to these chronic conditions where we are, have so much more of it. So it's as if they're just pushing the decision away and saying, well, oh, no, we're not using race, but we're using something very closely tied to race. So I, and I have suggested maybe using a lottery, and one of my colleagues, Dr. Michelle Holmes, actually has a petition on change.org about using a lottery for randomly allocating ventilators as the only system that will not perpetuate white supremacist ideology and, 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 and that kind of uh, injustice and uh, unfairness. Now, so if people how want how to is get, that working? Yeah. How, 
how would that work? A lottery? Yes. So, I, so my, each hospital or? Well, so actually that's a very important question. So first of all, what they're doing in Boston is they're not um, – it shouldn't be that one hospital is rationing while another hospital isn't. So they're trying to make sure that no hospital has to ration until everybody has to ration. That is, that you wouldn't find yourself in such and such hospital, Hospital X, and they don't have enough ventilators, so now they're going to ration while Hospital Y has, has 10 extra ICU beds with ventilators. So that's an important thing. But, but once it comes to that, my idea is that there would be some number, either assigned to you, or maybe it's your social security number, although we have to see if that's tied by race or, you know, whatever, but there'll be some number. And then at the point that there's one ventilator and three people who need it, then a random number generator would generate a number and whoever was closest to that number would get the ventilator. But here's something that I didn't realize, which is that they're also, it's not about who you give the ventilator to, it's also they're taking people off of ventilators to give them to other people as they're coming in. And so that's another piece that would have to be randomized. But it's, I tell you this, if we actually said this is the system we're going to use, we're not going to prioritize young people over old people. We're not going to prioritize people who don't have heart disease over people who do have heart disease. We're not even going to prioritize just some of our essential workforce, that is the doctors and nurses, without prioritizing also the custodians in the hospital or the respiratory techs or even the, the bus drivers and the like, because then where do you draw the line? So, so this system allows us to actually value all individuals and populations equally, which is one of the three principles that I uh, have proposed as principles for achieving health equity. The other two principles are recognizing and rectifying historical injustices. That's when you recognize that these people don't have diabetes because they're not trying or lazy or anything like that. It's because of the historical injustices of their life situation. And the third principle is providing resources according to need. So now once you give everybody a shot at life by valuing everybody equally, then you let them stay on the ventilator as long as they need it. That's how you provide resources according to need. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go back to um, the idea of how you would implement the three principles that you've outlined. Because um, who would be the arbiter to decide that, say, for instance, the lottery on ventilators? Or a mm-hmm. lot, uh, or, or who would oversee? Um, who would be? What would? Who would be the oversight body of all of these things? And also, who would be? Who? Who do you talk to to say this is what we're going to do? Who decides? So there. So yes. So each hospital has its own ethics committee. But as I said, at least in Massachusetts they didn't want each hospital to be having a separate um, standard. So the mm-hmm. Massachusetts Department of Public Health has mm-hmm. had representatives from many of the different hospitals, but these have been maybe physicians who are in, on the ethics committee in the hospital or whatever, and they came out with uh, a certain 
certain crisis standards of care that were approved by the governor. And so now uh, it's supposed other, to go back to each hospital. Have other states Sorry, discussed this? Well, I know Florida hasn't, but anyway. Uh, have other states discussed this in terms of implementation? I am sure that at least at the hospital level, people are very much discussing this because um, as people, as to the extent that we did not treat this as the public health crisis that it was and instead have let it become a medical care crisis, because if we had treated it as a public health crisis, we can go into that more deeply later, like what would that have looked like? But now it's, it's uh-huh. not a public health crisis anymore. It's a medical crisis, and we are overwhelming our hospitals in various places, places that have, have put the stay-in-place orders earlier and are doing much better. But, but uh-huh. hospitals are, who are expecting this, they have to be dealing with it. So uh-huh. I don't know if, if hospital systems, so you know there are many hospitals that are owned by uh, kind of national systems. So there's probably for hospitals in those kinds of chains, there's probably guidance Uh coming from the chain. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is something for community people to call the hospital and ask, well, what are your crisis standards of care or how are you going to handle if you have to make any rationing decisions? This is something Uh that everybody should know about the hospitals in their area. And, as I was saying, in Massachusetts, at least for the first go-round of these, I know that many people reacted to what the initial standards were, and so I don't know if they've been getting input and if they might consider revising things or not. But um, the community input was not actively sought as far as I could see in terms of the people who were listed as having contributed input. They were all you know, physicians or others in the hospital settings. But I have to say mm-hmm. this, this medical care thing is, um, yeah, it's a medical crisis right now. But the most important thing is not what's going to happen at that end. The most important thing for us to know is that mm-hmm. we need to talk to our Congress people, you know, as they're trying to develop this fourth rescue package. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where they already ran out of money for the, um, the payroll protection plan for the small businesses, the so-called PPP for small businesses. And many of our black and brown small businesses didn't have a relationship with some of the big banks that were doing this. And maybe the smaller banks, you know, closed down their lines in time. And anyway, whatever. So many of us have not gotten that kind of money. They're trying to add some more money to that. So that's something. We also need to make sure that that the president does not shut down the post office. Now, why is the president all of a sudden talking about how the post office so, is so bad and, and all that? Because yeah. he doesn't want to well, enable it's been a wet, mail it, ballots. Yeah. It's, it's been a wet dream of the Republican Party uh, since the Reagan years, but there's another form to it, and it's this mad president who uh, is so desperate to do those things which are in his interest to be reelected, that they have decided uh, to go after after the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, it was in the George Bush administration that uh, the budget and funding of the post, Postal Service and their reserve funds were so distorted and pickled with because 
they want to privatize the, uh, the Postal Service, that the post office is in the position that it is and that he can, uh, as the supreme political hack, uh, decide mm-hmm. that he's going to take this service, um, uh, service down. Uh, you're absolutely right, uh, especially poor people and working poor people in rural areas are going to be drastically hurt if this happens. I, I, I don't believe that this uh, Congress is going to allow it, but it is something that is very troubling. So It troubles um, me because I think he's trying to prevent – uh, the possibility of states expanding their mail-in ballot possibilities. I think exactly. he's trying. That's exactly I think this is another. Right, it's another uh, voter suppression effort. Yes, um, it 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 is a way because uh, even though he votes by mail, it is a way <laughs> to shut down voting by mail. Um, right. I mean. We could talk. We could talk for two hours just about those things that he is doing that will damage um, uh, our people severely, and things that he has done. But but let's go back to to looking at the, the in, in your third principle, the resources, housing. Uh, one of the things that occurred to me because, um, I mean, my physician in Boston called me six seven weeks ago, and said, this is happening, and I want you to stay home. Hmm. And everybody doesn't have that. I have that mm-hmm. because he's been my physician for over 20 years. And um, mm-hmm. so going back, and, and, and one of the things that I thought immediately when he sent me information about this COVID-19 coronavirus thing what about all of the black children who live in uh, poor, vin- poorly ventilated housing and have respiratory uh, disease like asthma? That was the, the right. first thought that came to my mind. Um, and uh, we have two agencies in the federal government uh, getting back to uh, black health disparities that have addressed nothing. The Healthy Boston, the Healthy um, Homes Program at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Health and Human Services Agency has done nothing in communities to address uh, what I think are just environmental issues having to do with uh, inadequate uh, housing structures, mold and mildew and uh, windows that don't open, windows that don't close, uh, ventilation Mm -hmm. systems Mm -hmm. that don't work. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go through all of the inadequate resources that our community faces, then you do begin to understand and, and and then there's another thing, Dr. Jones, that really just, it is the hiding of the numbers. Uh, that mm. The fact that Representative Ayanna Presley 
had to lead an effort, a legislative effort, to make sure that public health organizations, government organizations across the country were beginning to collect the data. Right. And Milwaukee County, which was the first one whose data came out there, they, they were the first ones to, to present their data stratified or you know shown by race. That's not an accident that it was Milwaukee County that was doing that. Um, you may have heard that last year, Milwaukee County actually passed a declaration declaring racism to be a public health crisis. Public health, yeah, that yes, was, yes. So that was revolutionary for a health department, a county health office, actually, or the whole county commissioner to, to do that. And so they, understanding that racism is a public health crisis, knew to demand that all of their data were looked at to see, is there something different going on here by race? So because yes. if Milwaukee yes. County hadn't led, um, then then who knows if we'd even know what we know today. So as I say, yes. you know, we have, to, we have to act on those data. We also need to be concerned about the testing strategy. So still, the U.S. has not been, it's almost as if, you know, you talk about, you know, the environmental in, in, interventions that we know would help not being implemented. CDC knows what to do in terms of infection, you know, handling an infectious disease. And it's almost like somebody put a big old muzzle on them or they lost their minds or something. Because mm-hmm. this, the way we've been doing testing so far has been just to test people who either have symptoms or sick enough to be in the hospital or, you know, maybe we'll test some of the first responders, right? Yeah. yeah. That yeah. kind of testing if I might say that kind of testing that is very narrowly focused on the individual and is just to confirm a diagnosis, that will never help us change the course of the pandemic. It will only document the course of the pandemic. Population-based thing where you test not only people who have symptoms, but pe- people who don't have symptoms. So you find out how much disease is there really in the population. That tells you where you need your health resources in two weeks. It also tells you, oh, this person never doesn't have symptoms, but they are actively spreading the disease. So you isolate that person and then you do the contact tracing. Who have you been with in the past week? And then you get to those people. And so then you Yeah, and we're and and we're 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 three months into this and they're they're just beginning to talk about uh, tracking investigations. I know that Charlie Baker right. in Massachusetts, the governor of Massachusetts, he's been talking about it for about a week, and he is, in 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 as as I see it, really um, leading the way on how you comprehensively try to mitigate, contain, and and bring together the partnership of medicine. And social and, and and social work and, and and nonprofits in a in a in a state to address some of these. I mean, he's not perfect. Uh, Andrew Cuomo is is not perfect, but they have a mindset for a, a systematic way in which right. to implement some 
some manage, management measures. Um, <clears throat> we're going to um, have to wrap up, but one of, soon, not right now, <laughs> one of the things I wanted okay. to talk to you about is we are really have been talking to people, and people really need to hear from professionals like you about this whole notion. Um, I um, have been quarantined now for mm-hmm. uh, a long time. But uh, every now and then I just get in my car and I drive places and I look to see what people are doing, <laughs> if, they're, if there's really life out there. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I I went into a gas station and um I saw a young girl. She must have been at like a high school and she was a clerk. All of these mm-hmm. people going to the gas station. I wasn't going inside, but I saw mm-hmm. her. No mask. Mm-hmm. No head cover. Mm-hmm. She had gloves and they were thin and they weren't nitrile. And I'm watching her handle money, give people money, take money from people. And Mm. I'm saying our corporations, our companies are large. And this was a large Mm. uh, oil company. And I'm saying, I'm thinking to myself, how how can our government allow this? Now, I know how they allow it in Florida. I'm getting used to it. But Mm. what are the measures that you think, companies need to take and that our community activists and nonprofits that advocate in our interests need to do in the wake of this madman, this lunatic that we have for president. Mm-hmm. And 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 I want to say to our to, to my audience, listen, I know he's not he's not crazy. He got a plan. Right. He's an out of control white he's a sociopath. nationalist. He, yes, yes, and he's a sociopath. He's, a, I mean, like the diagnosis. I mean, he hits all of them. So, I mean, he is from the diagnostic statistical manual for, for psychiatry. Uh-huh. He's a sociopath yep, yep. as well as a narcissist. Well, for, we know that, but yeah. Well, for three years I've been asking why they can't baker him. The FBI, the CIA, somebody just go in there and just drag him on out of there because 200 psychiatrists have said he's crazy as a loon. But um, what can people, what can we be asking for? Those people, you know, I've been saying stay at home and having arguments with people on Facebook and Twitter about, uh, and this was three weeks ago that I was saying I wouldn't care. A kid of mine would not go back to school, not not now. But um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there are people who have to go back to school. They have children at home who are trying to listen. They're confused. There's a lot of chaos, and they're trying to homeschool them and work and all of this stuff is going on. What is your best advice to us at this point? So there are going to be many waves of this uh, during this pandemic because what we're really waiting for is the vaccine or a cure. 
And so the waves, well, the heights of those waves, it's not like we're going to hit some peak and then go down and we're done. And it's really distressing. I was listening to um, what I call the show now. I mean, they had another, you know, the they yeah. call them briefings, but yeah. I call it the show. The rally. Um, uh-huh. Yes, the rally. And um, even today, um, Dr. Burks was presenting some data that she was, I mean, even, I lost confidence in her even knowing what she was talking about because she was talking about something called case fatality rate, but the pictures she was showing in the graphs and all were about COVID-specific mortality rate. Nobody needs to know that except I know that, that, that what she was saying was not true and that what she was saying about it was not right. And, well, there were a lot um, of people so who knew had, it. There were a lot of people who knew it. Um, I was, um, <laughs> I was like, I, I, I have just said, you know, she's just a puppet and a minion, and it's too bad because her credibility is busted. I even think Dr. Right. Fossey's uh, credibility is busted, and I, I'm not understanding. But anyway, yeah, you're so anyway, you're right. So, but what they we are, need to know, right? So. Yeah, so, they, so, so, so anyway, so I was like, oh, wow, what we need to know is it's not going to be one peak, that this is going to spread across the country and it's going to be in different intensities in different places, that um, until there is a, a vaccine, we have to be very careful about how we edge back out into mingling and that kind of thing, because the main thing is until there's a vaccine or until enough of us have acquired immunity because we got the disease and we survived it, then um, then, it's, then it's just going to be waves, either little, little waves or big, big waves. And so I would say we have to continue to not touch our face. So that's the thing. So the, the virus is getting in through our mouths, our noses, or our eyes. It's not getting in through the skin or anything like that. So we need to not touch our face. That's number one. Wash our hands frequently, wear a mask outside, do the social distancing, the six feet. As much as possible, stay at home. If somebody is sick, then they should try to get the test immediately. If, if there were some other place that they could go where they didn't have to go back in the home, especially if it's like a multi-generational family type of living situation and there are older people there, and especially if it were close living quarters where you couldn't really socially isolate and, you know, like one bathroom and the kitchen shared and all like that. That's what, that's why we're getting sicker too, is because, because, you know, the young person might be going out delivering pizzas or something like that and coming back in and then the grandmother is there. And, 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 you know, so it's, it's all that. So to the extent that we can socially distance, can isolate, can quarantine, can take care of our elders by bringing them food so they don't have to go to the store, um, so all of those things we need to do, and we need to um, make sure that the Congress makes it more feasible for us to do things by, you know, it shouldn't just be this one-time payment that hopefully people will be able to get eventually, you know, the $1,200, that they had to do something for small businesses. So, so the government has something, has a lot to do with it, and then our own behaviors have a lot to do with it. We should be and, and operating the, on both yeah. sides. Yeah, I, and I for those of you who are listening, even as we're... go on. Go ahead. 
I mean, so go ahead. So, so while we, so we shouldn't think of this as social distancing. We should think of this as physical distancing, but community organizing at the same time. We need to be community exactly. organizing right now to, exactly. to get what we need in yeah. these rescue packages, and we need to be organizing around November third. We need to be very much uh, pressing to fund the post, post office fully. That um, that all the 50 states and D.C. have a uh, a mail-in option, like a no questions asked mail-in option. Not that that would be the only way that people could vote, but that that would be one way. Uh, and so then that's done by the secretaries of state and all of that. And, and so you have to pressure your secretary of state and the government. We need to be organizing because if yes. the same leadership is in place, not just this country, the whole world is in danger. You know, if, if, yes. if it's going to be another four years of this, this is really horrible. Yeah. It, it really is. Uh, let me ask you a favor. Um, I would like to be at the apex of being a catalyst for the national conversation with black community activists, nonprofit advocates, to ensure that we are educating, informing, and challenging elected officials to address, to name, to begin to measure and address the impact of racism in health disparities in this country. So I want to ask you to come back. Uh, to talk with us about that, and I'm going to invite some of my friends. <laughs> I got friends. Okay. <laughs> um, because that would be I think wonderful. I, I think that we do have to uh, begin to articulate for our community um, their experience in a way that somehow evolves into activism at every level. Yes. Um, and you gave me a very good idea. My, my granddaughter is a medical examiner in the Office of the Medical Examiner in Massachusetts, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and they've been trying to figure out about assigning COVID-19 autopsies. And um, the lottery is is a way to do it, you know. Who who gets who gets them today? Do a lottery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get them this mm-hmm. month. Do mm-hmm. a lottery. Mm-hmm. Doctor mm-hmm. Kamara Jones. Kamara. Thank you so much. Kamara. Kamara. Okay. Yes. Uh, thank you. I, thank you so you very much for joining things? us. Yes. Yes. May I leave you with three quick Please thoughts? Please do. Please um, do. Mm-hmm. So the first is. The first, that now that the nation has awakened just slightly to the existence of racism, and as you say, you want to be at the forefront of this, the, our job now is to not let them go back to sleep. They cannot, this country cannot slip back into racism denial. So after all this is over, we must still be naming racism, asking how is racism here, organizing and strategizing to act. And the first three parts of an anti-racism uh, policy agenda for me would be reparations, decarceration, and strong investment in our communities, especially in our children, so that we couldn't say the phrase, 
disadvantaged child and have it have any meaning because no child should be born into disadvantage. I also want to say that I have, if people wanted to Google to see some of the allegories, the teaching stories that I've developed to help people talk about racism without, you know, shutting down and getting in an argument or whatever, they can Google my name, C-A-M-A-R-A, Kamara Jones, TED Talk, and that would take them to an 18-minute uh, YouTube video with four of my allegories on race and racism. And, and the other thing, it not is, to... It, the, the, that, um, your TED Talk is posted on the Our Common Ground website as well as the Our Common Ground Facebook page. So Thank you for that. It, and it was a wonderful talk. Uh, it is, for those of you who are listening, it is recommended highly if you want to further understand how we can begin the national conversation. And then the third thing I'll say is not to compete with our common ground, but on Wednesdays at 8 p.m., um, Hillary Beard, who is a journalist, Phil Wilson, who established the Black AIDS Institute, and I are doing a Facebook Live show every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, where I've been actually doing like an Epi 101, you know, like what what is this testing thing about? What is, you know, uh, what is the infectious disease timeline? So I would like to invite people there, and that's on Hillary Beard Author, Facebook Live at okay. H-I-L-A-R-Y Beard Author. Is it possible for you to... Um uh, email me or to post that on my Facebook page on yes, our common ground. I surely will. I Thank surely you very will. much. And you be Thank safe you. because caregivers okay, and thinkers, we need to for you to keep yourself safe. Thank you so much for being with us on our common ground. How uplifting and informative you have been, and we look forward to to you coming back. Despite. Uh, we uh, we need to be talking about this every night, every day, <laughs> and you're not gonna find what it, it everywhere. Um, it was my pleasure. I'm, thank you I'm, so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Kamara Jones. Kamara. Thank you for <laughs> Kamara. Kamara. I, you know, <laughs> Kamara Jones. I'm so sorry. Um. And we need, I'm suggesting that all of you follow her on Facebook and join in on Wednesday nights with her colleagues uh, to hear more. But she'll be back. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and this is the Black Sanctuary. Thank you for being with us uh, tonight. In the second page, we're going to be joined by Dr. James Lance um, Taylor, uh, who is the is an our common ground voice. He's been with us many times, and I hope you'll stay with us. If for those of you who do not know, you can join us at OCG Talk Radio on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter at Janice OCG. Thanks to Dr. Jones so much for being with us and for those of you who are in our chat room. And uh, I'm kind of awkward on this. This is the first time I've done a broadcast uh, in 
almost two and a half years. It's good to be back. I'm Janice Graham. You stay tuned. In the second page, we're going to be talking about the the political crisis during this pandemic. It's amazing how people can come together by spending time apart. Quest Diagnostics thanks you for doing your part to stop the spread of the coronavirus through social distancing and proper hygiene. At Quest, we're doing our part by establishing COVID-19 lab testing capabilities across the country to better serve our communities and healthcare providers. If you suspect you have COVID-19, talk to a healthcare provider and let's keep doing our part so we can all come back together stronger than ever. It's amazing how people can come together by... Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Shout out to the hip-hop public health. All the healthcare workers on the front line. Together, we can make a difference. What's good, y'all? This is Doug T. Fresh coming at you live and direct. All of y'all out there, got a couple of things I want to talk to y'all about. Wash your hands, everybody. And everybody, wash your hands. Come on, wash your hands, everybody. And everybody, wash your hands. My people uptown, wash your hands. My people downtown, wash your hands. People from the East Coast, wash your hands. People from the West Coast, wash your hands. First and foremost, sneezes and clothes. Take your time, wash. Use a lot of soap from the front to the back. Back to the front. Sing the hook where you at. That's exactly what we want. If you decide to leave, please take heed. Talk a social distance. At least six feet. On the bus or the train. Riding in your car. The further you're away, then the better off you are. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Gray. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. To make the greatest mistake, you need to watch them when you enter the door. 20 seconds or more. Take your time, sing a song, sit around. When you finish, you can put on some gloves. 20 seconds or more. It's very important to wash your hands. What is that? Oh, that? It's my time machine. Does it work? Sure. Just hit this button. Whoa, dinosaurs. Cool. Or we can go here. Hey, that's Napoleon. Me. Or we can go to the future. Wow, hey, you have this nice house. Do I have a nice house? No, you didn't save any money, always spent it on vacations and stuff. If only there was a way I could go back in time and correct that bad habit. Yep. Okay, the time machine is not real, but the saving thing is. Get in the habit of putting some of your money in savings each week through a 401k, savings account, or financial investment. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. 
For free ideas and easy tips on saving, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. What does this crazy little button do? This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Talk about the crisis in 
um, in politics, in our government, if we still have one. Um, <coughs> he's the uh, professor and chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco, and he has previously taught at St. Louis University in Madrid and in the African American Studies program at the University of California in Berkeley. I just sent him a message and asked him, where are you? Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if you notice and and you see the intersection of what is happening in our community within the pandemic and the issues that we have discussed throughout the years in the, the idea of how white supremacy affects every aspect of our lives, whether it be economics and talking, I was I was really glad to hear uh, Dr. Jones and more and more people are uh, talking about uh, reparations and uh, the need to demand equity in um, the uh, inequities uh, of our lives about um, our wealth, our lack of wealth. So we're going to take some calls here. I see that Alpha is calling in. Hey, Alpha, good to hear from you. We are where well, we belong. Evening, yeah, I'm afraid so. We where we belong, but not where we deserve to be. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed the guest. Uh, very, very important points that they that she made. Ah, uh, the political end of this is not far from my basic thoughts, and my basic thoughts have, are have not changed. Have not changed for the people who want to approach this in a bipartisan way. These people don't fight in a bipartisan manner. Right now, uh, old Jim Jordan, I didn't see nobody get molested, congressman from Ohio, he wants uh, Congress to investigate the governor's virus shutdown orders, and you know who he's talking about. We are constantly being attacked by these people, and it's not in good faith. And as long as there is no fight back, there is no pushback, they will continue to attack us over and over and over again. I am just, just pissed off that the attack on this president is not more cutting and more swift. It's not enough to point out the timeline that he squabbled away and allowed 
thousands more to die. He should be labeled. He should be renamed president of death by politicians, by a real politician, a senator, a congressman, anyone. But right now he seems to be trying to shift the blame and and push things to the side. And it's the WHO's fault. It's it's the media's fault. Uh, Any question he doesn't like, he starts a a tit-for-tat fight with. These people are playing for keeps, and we've uh, come to a gunfight with a feather and a thesaurus. And that's been the problem with the party for the last 40 years, 50 years. We shouldn't be a situation where they pounded on the eventual nominee of the Democratic Party and his son, and there was no pushback on Ivanka, Don Jr., and the corruption meted out with the Trump family, with the foundation, with the university, with the Trump states, with the Trump water, with the Trump... Name it. The man is a grifter. He's a con man. And everybody should want a crime commission after he leaves office. As soon as he leaves office, everybody should be howling for a crime commission, period. Well, okay, Alpha, we get that, and most people would agree with you. But the question really is, what do we do now? I mean, um, El Michelle in our chat room earlier made the comment that people can't get testing. And if if the majority of people who you know who we're talking about, as Dr. Jones indicated, can't... um, um, can't get testing, we can't protect ourselves. But but here's the point. I, I, I hear you, and the media has essentially abandoned us to the propaganda machine. And when I watch these... Um, you can only call them propaganda... Um, hours or two hours, whatever. What this man is doing is running a campaign on our dime and nobody is talking about his violation of the Hatch Act. And he was talking about John Kerry's violation of the Logan Act, which is not true. And nobody's fact-checking him and nobody's saying to him, we're not going to be a part of your propaganda machine. So MSNBC, ABC, NPR, and the other the other point, let me ask you a question, Alpha. Why would a reporter of any credibility even show up? Because they said they're afraid. But they're, I'm, I'm, they are afraid. If they don't show up, if they speak back, or talk to him too harshly. You know, he interrupts every question. 
and cuts them off. And when they try to reassert themselves, he basically dismisses them and yells, sit down. He bullies them, that kind of stuff. And they are worried about losing access, just like they were worried about losing access with Bush, with Republicans. That's how that's their technique. That's their uh, uh, modus operandi. That's how they operate. And there is a a, a great uh, example of what this democracy will become if this man gets another four years, and that's the example of Hungary. When Victor or was it Victor Orbitz? When he came into a full-fledged democracy in Hungary, he attacked the media, he pushed through judges, and he turned the democracy into a full-blown dictatorship. He put children in cages. He had, he was, he, he had an anti-immigration policy, the whole nine yards, and without any pushback, without any anyone standing up to him, literally standing up to him, he will bulldoze the media. The media has, he'll, he'll, he'll call them fake. And, and why in the world, if he's calling CNN the enemy of the people, MSNBC the enemy of the people, why aren't they in full-fledged attack mode? The only thing they should be broadcasting here is the timeline in which he basically brought about these 37,000 deaths. And the reason we are going through what we're going through is because of a failure in leadership. This is not his money. This is not their money. This is taxpayer dollars for the people. The top 5% of small businesses that got loans are from red states. The bottom five are from blue states, California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois. I mean, it's, it's, it's so obvious. The stats will show you how obvious it is, and they simply don't, they simply won't respond, and they won't do what they're supposed to do. Now he's, he's going to veto anything that has help for the post office because he doesn't want vote by mail to go through. And I look at it like this. Thank you, Democrats, because you had a chance when you had at least 59 senators, and you could have pushed that legislation through. When Republicans are in power, they jam through, force through whatever they want done. And that's where we are. All of these I don't like Hillary. I don't like Hillary's a crook and all of this. This is what we've got. This is what you get when you stand by and say, I'm not going to vote for the lesser of two evils. And like I've always said, when has this country been anything other than evil? It's not about the lesser of two evils. Evil is evil regardless. And since both are the same Wings on the same bird, they're both evil. Just one is more evil than the other. You have to pick your battles. You have to pick who you're going to vote for. 
And right now, why someone would vote Republican, I'll never know. It's beside me. Well, a lot of people will vote Republican for a number of reasons. But one one of the the, the, the reasons is that uh, race <laughs> trumps everything. Exactly. And you know that. I, I understand you that. Know. I understand that, and this is why I, I'll say it and I'll continue. I'll always say it. This is why we as a people in our community, we are all, we're too easy to forgive and forget. We're too easy to give them a pass, cut them some slack for their past misdeeds. When when they vote this man out, they should turn around and prosecute him. They should prosecute well, him to the full extent of the law on whatever they can get him on. They should get his taxes. They should get all of the things he's withholding and all of the things that he withheld during the Mueller report. Mueller's 12 obstruction of justice should have been sealed indictment. Well, one of the things you have to understand, I mean, I think you understand it, that we are now living in an autocracy. This global criminal enterprise that Trump has going is in place. It is working because he has extorted everyone who would be a threat to the enterprise. We are no longer, well, I mean, we're, we don't even have the shaky democracy we had before he was, he was um, uh, before he stole the election. You know, and and one of the reasons that he is doing, I mean, he is not just being, he's being a sociopath who is a white nationalist who has no ideology. He doesn't have the intellectual ability to have any ideas. He gets his ideas from people like Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller, Sean Hannity, Vladimir Putin. Well, of course, Vladimir Putin, and uh, and at this point, I'll say this. But to his you. mind is muddled. His mind is muddled with he's a he's a um, a radical nationalist, and his mind gets muddled. Well, in all of the other stuff that he is, including a white supremacist, white nationalist. He wants all of us to go away. Well, at the rate and the lack of pushback, it'll happen. Absolutely. And, and and, And we're dealing with an absolute, as Dr. Jones uh, said very plainly, 
Uh, we're dealing with a sociopath who has the power and control of our entire government. He is an autocratic dictator because no one is telling him that he is showing him that he's not above the law. Well, I've, I've got an opinion on that, and uh, I'll simply say this. I mean, how is he? Was, how how is he, Alpha? How is he not above the law when he has an attorney general and a Supreme Court that will kill anything? that brings him back into the to the framework of the Constitution. Well, let me the put it The constitutionalists like are allowing him to, I mean, he's not even a federalist anymore. But the federalists exactly. and the constitutionalists are allowing him to run roughshod over any law and especially... Because Well, because the top priority are the judges. Their top priority are judges and tax cuts. And to that I say, shut it down. Shut it all down. Collapse the economy. That's their worst nightmare. All of these rich Wall Street folks. No, all of these rich Wall Street folks, uh, there are only 40% of Americans uh, engaged in Wall Street. I mean, I'm one of them, but uh, if that's the answer you need to bring to get this back to a democracy, then that's the card you have to play. But right now, he's with this pandemic, he is deeply on the ropes, but you have to fight a little harder. You have to go at him in a different manner. You have to play for keeps, and they, and Democrats don't play for keeps. They just play. And, and who, okay, and so with 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 the right solution, who's going to be the implementer, Alpha? Well, the implementer can come from progressive congressmen. The progressives in the Congress and, and Elizabeth Warren in in the uh, in the Senate, along with uh, Kamala Harris, and you got you know you've got you've got individuals who are the <laughs> Macy Hirono in Hawaii, you got people who they're not afraid to to, to speak truth to power. They're not afraid well, to, you know, to for what he is. At the at this at this point, just pointing out to him, I mean, if anybody sat through the impeachment hearings, you understood who he was. It was articulated in eloquent language and legal language that was precise, and it didn't matter. If you look at the Mueller report, the part that we can see because it wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, redacted, uh, then you understand uh, what the articulation and what the principles are. But here's my question about the Democratic Party, is that the Democratic Party has been spending much of its time ensuring that 
the democratic establishment is not disrupted. That is why, in my opinion, Bernie Sanders, who is a real ideologue, uh, was put down by the democratic establishment because he was too disruptive. And the Democratic Party uh, leadership and power mongers only want to preserve those things which make them safe and secure. And with that being said, with everything that has happened in the last two months where this man has been negligent in allowing a pandemic and obstructing containment of that pandemic, he is not putting in the federal resources in place for testing because he doesn't want to face the numbers. Because that's, he me, knows. Janice, to me, that's negligent homicide. Absolutely. But who's going to hold him accountable? Well, it's not about the people. The people going to the polls. You know Bill Barr isn't. And just as he's practicing negligent homicide, the Republicans will have to go down in flames with him. Because it should be pointed out that had they did their job and voted in the in the uh, in the uh, hearing like they should have voted according to the facts, he wouldn't be in office to fumble this. It's been about it's up to the states to get their own ventilators. That's why he should be called president of death. Because that's what he is. If 37,000 people have died, over 37,000, it'll be close to 70,000. It's 38,568 deaths as of 5 p.m. today. There are 735,074 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in this country. Our number is 347-838-9852. If you'd like to join us in this conversation, this is our common ground. I, I you know, I, I, I think that one of the most misappropriated uh, points of view is the idea, and I agree with you, in which the Democrats have operated in the last 12 months. And can somebody please tell me, if this isn't socialism for the rich, what is? Well, I mean, that that's not even a debate at this point. And the question really is, how the Democrats are going to begin to implement a system of political brokerage. 
And for us, the question is, and our political infrastructure is in the toilet. It is in a shambles. We have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nowhere to go. Well, I I would just hope that... um, those uh, so-called um, uh, educated Democrats basically wake up and smell the coffee. Well, because the I, I coffee just don't think... Is... Who? Who I are you talking I just, about? I just, I just, I'm talking about those those people who call themselves uh, intellects, like uh, the crew over at Black Agenda Report, the Glenn Fords, and the um, and that other guy. What's his? What's the other clown's name? Um, not with Black Agenda. This is the. This is one of the guys who. Um, Glenn Glenn Greenwald is his name, I believe. Oh, you know these people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, these these people have a, a a certain a certain disdain for playing hardball for playing hardball. Mm-hmm. And right now, we need hardball players on our side. We need yeah. hardball messages. No, I want to talk to you further about this. I'm going to put you on hold for a minute and go to another caller. Okay. Um, 646, you're on the air at our common ground. Thank you for your call. DJ, it's Jay. How are you, my queen? (laughs) I'm good, Jay. Good to hear from you. Alpha Uh, is good to hear you. I'm doing good. It's good to hear your voice, Alpha. Listen, BJ, this is this is a sad situation. Very sad situation to be in. And unfortunately, we don't have the type of leadership to really do anything about it. And the people who are supposed to be the truth tellers are really honestly in no position at all. And your so-called political thought agents, the ones that get on TV and run their mouth and talk the talk and walk the walk, they can't do anything because they can't even come together and put forward the right narrative on how this thing should be moved. You know, everybody is talking about, well, Joe Biden has to pick a black woman as the VP. My question is this. What you going to do if he don't pick a black woman as the VP? I mean, you know, the sad thing is we have no position in this country. We don't manufacture nothing. We don't produce nothing. We don't build nothing. We don't own nothing. 
all we do is run our mouths. And that's the tragedy. Well, Jay, because let it's me, now let coming me, to light. Let me, yeah, let me, let me stop you uh, and, and ask you a question about uh, the Biden uh, nomination and what that is going to mean and what you think might be the uh, outcome. Uh, I am hoping that he does not. I mean, uh, let me tell you how I'm looking at this November 3rd thing. Uh, I'm a very practical person. I've gotten to be an old lady. Uh, But I still have some common sense, and I still go back to uh, the wisdom of my ancestors and say Joe Biden is the price that we will have to pay. Um, I am hoping... But, you know, we talk about what we don't have, and we need to talk about what we do have. And we do have people who are beginning... I mean, Jay, you know, I've been doing this since 1985. And I could have been off the air for 10 years and still talking about the same thing every time, every time I hit this microphone. But what we do have is we have people who are now beginning to wake up, and what we need to do is to make sure they stay awake. When you've got as many people, as many black people who have died from this pandemic in Chicago, in Texas, in Florida, and Florida's not even keeping the, um, um, just started this week, keeping racial numbers on this, on, on the deaths and hospitalizations on the pandemic. So what we have to do is find a way, and uh, that was one of the things that I tried to target with Dr. Jones earlier in the program, is to make sure that we're beginning to organize. We organize around things that uh, don't have the kind of impact that we need to have on especially some of, let me, you know, a, a, a person that I love very much called me last week and said, you know what, we got to stop voting for black people just because they're black. And there's a a double edge on that. We do need to start holding people accountable. I have not, and you have not, seen enough coming out of the Black Congressional Caucus on this pandemic. And they should have been the clarion call as this began to unfold on black health disparities and what it would mean in the outcome of bad management of this pandemic. They should have been the first. So I hear what you're saying, and it, 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 is, it, it is not, it, it is sad. I'm hoping that people will stay safe and begin to think about our survival. That's why I said 
black survival dual crisis. We have a crisis of representation and we have a crisis of health going on in this country. So uh, we got to look at what we have, and what we have is the ability to pick up the phone and connect with community advocates and say, do you have this information? What are you doing about this information? Uh, it is very pressing to me, and I don't know how you feel about it, and I'll give you a minute um, to express it, but it is very troubling to me that this mad president, this criminal, he is the head of a global crime enterprise. He is hiding and doing the work and implementing agendas that's not in the interest and in violation of a, a U.S. law to feed money into his coffers. There is a reason that he moved out of Trump Tower in New York City in Manhattan to go to Mar-a-Lago and live and call that his residence. And we have to think through all of those things. So, Jay, I'm going to let you for a second um, uh, respond to what I have said because there is also a reason that we are not manufacturers, and, and there are a lot of black manufacturers, but not it, the numbers are disparate. Uh, there are black people who are doing things, but the numbers are not significantly enough to make the impact. Um, so... You know, if you wake up on Monday morning and the Black Congressional Caucus has not called for hearings on health disparities, uh, then you need to also make a call to your representative, um, make a call to Ayana, Representative Ayanna Presley is, is, is taking the lead on what racial health disparities uh, are, how racial health disparities are impacting on this pandemic now. Not next week, but now. We have well, to Well, the racial, the racial pandemic is, is, is not only affecting us, it's affecting everybody. Because what most of these people don't understand is when people of color suffer, they suffer also. And for some reason, I don't think they understand that. So this is why you have somebody like Trump who is allowed to get away with the things that he's getting away with because the public feels as though they're sadly mistaken because this is going to affect them just as much as it's affecting us and probably more yeah, but so in the, in the end. Now, I mean, as far as our leadership goes, I mean, let's be honest. Our, our leadership is not concerned about the masses of black people and how they survive in this country. Their, their concern, well, unfortunately, is keeping their position. They they show it all the time well, well, by their actions and behavior. We just don't call them I, out or hold them accountable. 
yeah, we we need to hold them accountable, but we also need to consider that, you know, you've been listening to this show for years, and one of the things that I always say that we are the leaders that we have been looking for, and there is another thing here. We have to be able to name, identify, and really talk through the idea of who are the black people, because... um, you and now that's I, the, yeah, you get in trouble with that. Now, when you when you start talking about that, you get in trouble me, about that me, because everyday black folks don't count, babe. People that have yes. gotten to a position like yourself, who have had good lives and who have done good things and have grandchildren like yours, they count in the eyes of the politician. But Ray Ray and Pookie and the rest of them who haven't been as beneficial as having family members like you, they don't give a damn about them. And that's what which the is, real which is why is. Which is why when we are thinking about uh, legislative initiatives, when we're listening to people talking to us on the talking machines, uh, one of the things that we need to be thinking through is understanding that uh, while we talk about race, we also need to talk about racial classes. When okay. I talk about when I talk about black community, I'm talking about uh, those people who have no voice, those people who have no resources, those people who are. Uh, just um, not in the same um, social economic class, and they're the majority of the truth be told. Privileges, right. Jay, I got to go. My guest just showed up. (laughs) Thanks for your call. Love you as always. Okay. Okay. Uh, We are going to be joined by Dr. James Lance Taylor. Dr. Taylor, how are you? And thank you for joining us. I, I am so sorry, uh, Ms. Graham. I am—I didn't want to cause you a, a, a nervous breakdown waiting for me to get here. Yes, you but, did. Uh, but yes, we had a little episode, a little situation with our with our family, uh, our children oh, playing I'm so basketball. Sorry. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But okay. But okay. yeah, so I'm glad to be uh, here and and to to join uh, you tonight. We okay. We've got just about. Uh, 10, 12 minutes. Um, give us your analysis of where we are politically and what we need to do. Um, just, you know, I, I've already made the statement that uh, our political infrastructure for any kind of empowerment at this point has completely collapsed. Absolutely. And I think that's why, um, you know, in the in the larger Democratic versus Republican uh, you know, party challenge in this next election, the, the policy positions that Bernie Sanders advocated really are the most suited for this, like, watershed breakthrough, widespread pandemic that exposed all of the inequities that were in place uh, as a precondition. In other words, being black and poor was a pre-existing condition, 
And then um, the coronavirus just came and exposed that and, and at every level. And the entire conversation since 2016 with the Bernie campaign, with the Occupy movement before that, with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, was indeed about, you know, health care. That was the winning issue in 2018 when the Democrats won by plus 8 million votes. Um, you know, it's it's been the most important issue in poll after poll after poll. And so, um, you know, when you see the, you know, its importance and you see the pandemic breakout, you can see this sort of way in which a lot of the, the, the sort of progressive policy positions overlay the situation in terms of, you know, who's affected, the elderly, the poor, African-American people, people in cities, um, you know, people who um, are not employed by private insurance with jobs like myself at a private university or public university where you get insurance or any job. Most Americans have, uh, you know, health insurance through their jobs and not through their through the you know through the public um, unless they're poor or, or or less fortunate. And so, um, what Corona has exposed is that the American uh, social, economic, and political system is completely a misfit for the ways in which America is changing and has changed. And the tragedy of Donald Trump is that his mentality and that of his followers is to go backward when uh, at this present, at this moment, in the, at the precipice of the 21st century, you need enlightened leadership that looks and reads the American situation. It's browning, uh, it's diversification, it's urbanization, um, the fact that the a lot of groups like the last three black uh, generations from the baby boomers, the exes, and the um, millennials are moving back south, the fact that the black population is going from 45 million right now to 65 million in 25 years, not 100 years, and 75 million by, 50, uh, by 2070. So we're talking about uh, you know, 50 years, the black population is going to be 75 million, and most of it move, is southern. And then you have the Asian population doubling, the Latino population exploding. The only group in America that's not growing is the white population. It's dying, actually, in 33 out of 50 states. And as a consequence, Donald Trump is the uh, the, the yelping, screaming, um, you know, dying uh, thing that expresses their anxiety. And that's not including... Uh, Ms. Graham, the 130 people who are dying every day uh, to the rate of 45,000 people now out doing cars and guns um, through the opioid crisis. So white people are in complete crisis, um, and, and those are just their emergencies, not their everyday crises. Um, and that's before corona hit. Uh, and so um, part of this is playing out in the support Trump has gotten, which has been you know baked in no matter what he has said or done. But I think people need to pay attention and note that the black vote, led mainly by black women but not exclusively, um, but, you know, black voters have truly um, shaped pretty much the entire primary season, and I think they're going to have the, uh, you know, an, an important impact on what happens in November because they've been coming after Trump ever since the first night he lost by 3 million votes to Hillary Clinton in the popular vote. Uh, uh, then he lost by 8 million more votes protest. in November of 18. Yeah. And that's when yeah. Nancy Pelosi, I'll, uh, uh, real quickly, that's when Nancy Pelosi gets the gavel and becomes Speaker of the House again and, and impeaches Trump. So, and black folk were on that in the CBC 
months before anybody else. So I think we have to understand that there's a, a, a you know a, a leadership being demonstrated by African Americans trying to take hold of this moment that people are dealing with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I had so much to talk to you about, and I'm trying to I'm I'm, I'm trying to get to you know one of the things that I am most concerned about is the ability of this, the democratic establishment and leadership to uh, to go forward to November 3rd and get this lunatic out of office. I mean... Yeah, I think all the uh, signs are positive. As a student of political science, a student of history, a student of black political history, a student of presidential history, who teaches presidential politics. I'm teaching a graduate student level uh, class on presidential politics right now. And if I were a betting man, and I'm not, um, all of the signs are that Donald Trump will be a one-term president just because his base uh, is not expanded, it's flatlined, um, he's lost. It's actually uh, uh, atrophied uh, by uh, suburban uh, and non-educated I mean, non-college educated white women. So he's losing important elements, and he's not expanding his base. He's actually the most important driver for the mobilization of voters. That's what I mean by black folk have been mobilized since the night Trump won, and they've stayed uh, busy. So I think in the long run, um, you know, if, you know, as long as people turn out, and of course you have to factor in the cheating, and you have to out, outdo the cheating. But black people have always had to know how many jelly, bean, uh, jelly beans were in the jelly bean jar just by going to the same store and buying the same jar from the same store and buying the same jelly beans and counting them up and then walking up as they did in the movie with Oprah uh, in, uh, in uh, Selma uh, where she walked up and knew the number of jelly beans in there. Black people and poor people and, and, and women people have to outperform the discrimination, the suppression, the, you know, the voter IDs, the... Um, all of the discrimination and voter suppression, the gerrymandering, all of these mechanisms the Republicans have to use because, as you saw in 2000 and 2016, they can't win with the popular vote. They have to use these different kind of mechanisms because they are dying out. And as the country continues to brown, um, the Republicans understand, and even Trump is expressing it, they cannot win legitimately. And so uh, having the court on their side, et cetera, people have to outperform it with democracy and deliver such a watershed defeat for Donald Trump like 1964 for Goldwater that, they, that, that it can't be contested. And I think that's what we're on the verge of. I think Donald Trump is in serious, serious, serious trouble already as an impeached incumbent trying to seek reelection. That was one part of history that pressed against him. But now you add this completely, completely inept response. To um, to Katrina uh, to Corona, and I don't think Joe Biden needs to do anything except show up on November, uh, whatever the actual date is, November fourth or whatever the date is, third, and vote third. for himself. <laughs> but November third, because at yeah. this point, Donald Trump is failing all by himself. He needs no help from anybody else. Well, he certainly is is a failure and he's a disgrace. But what I'm doing is. Uh, I'm encouraging people, you got to go door-to-door in every community right. and get people out uh, to vote. The, I mean, the work has been done, and I, I, I really, you know, I, I and and I hope. You owe me, i got to go, but you yes, owe let's, me. Let's, let's, let's do it again soon so I can make it up to you. I apologize. Okay, i I got to go, and I, I, you've, you've, you've dropped some real nuggets, and maybe we can uh, rejoin next week. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Take care. 
That was Dr. James. You know that he knows his stuff. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and thank you so much for being with us tonight. Next week, Ruby Sales. Dr. Ruby Sales will be with us, and hopefully Dr. James Turner will also. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.